Hour 2, Mutt and Lou, 93.7 WEEI, breaking down a tough Bruins loss last night, 4-2 in Montreal, and doing so with Andy Brickley of Nesson. He's in studio, and he's brought to you by Norfolk Power Equipment, HSA Insurance, and Joe and Lee's Golf Performance Center. Morning, Brick. How are you? Usually I respond by saying stellar, but uh, not really this morning after what I watched last night. I you, asked. Yeah, I was just saying, do you, do you agree that you're kind of shaking your head, saying, you know, what, what am I watching? Like, who are these guys? Well, I, you know, I try to come at it with that uh, seven-game series approach because that's what I thought it was going to go right mm-hmm. from the start. And, and it's important to keep in perspective that that fine line between winning and losing, especially when you get to round two in the National Hockey League, especially when you have Bruins Canadians, especially when you talk about these two particular teams and the matchups and the challenges that are presented – the fact that you're down two games to one, if you keep everything in perspective, you're like, okay, that's no big deal. And then you start to peel the onion a little bit mm-hmm. and try to figure out why you're down two games to one and what needs to change. And I think if you kind of keep that perspective instead of getting almost like the players are trying to fight that, don't get caught up in the frustration. Don't let Montreal get under your skin. And as fans, or certainly as an analyst, I try to keep that approach but I almost feel like I have more emotion, more so than what I'm watching at times in the Bruins' response to what's happening on the ice. And uh, and I understand that that's a fine line to walk as well, but there is definitely a margin for the Bruins to improve a little nasty in their game in this series, not to the point where they put themselves at a disadvantage, but they got to up it a little bit. And I, I heard a little bit on the ride in, you guys talking about uh, Montreal getting the bigger of the hits, certainly in Game 3. Uh, there were a number of really big did hits you, did you against the Bruins. Pardon? Did you? Did you? Subban left his feet. The Moen hit on Aginla. Was it boarding? Was were those? Illegal? I, I thought it was a borderline hit, and I thought it was called mostly because they felt uh, the officials that is that this was a good time to call a penalty to make sure they had control of the hockey game because that threshold of what they were going to allow was pretty clear and it was pretty consistent, which is what you were looking for, that they were going to let them play. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a bunch of stick infractions early in the game, both directions, I'd say more so by Montreal, where they just said, you're going to have to fight through that tonight, boys. And I think the players appreciated that. And I think that hit, it was borderline. It was close to being a really, really good hit by Subban. But because he did get that, uh, I don't know if it was an elbow or a straight arm, however you want to describe it, right. uh, it was enough to say, you know what, let's call a penalty here because that could lead to where this game shouldn't go, uh, whether you agree that, <laughs> with that yeah. or not. But in their opinion, I think that was mostly the reason that they made that call and that hit. How about the Moen hit? Great hit. Absolutely great hit. I expect Bruins to make hits like that. Right. Uh, you know, Even though Aginla truly didn't have the puck, he was around the puck and trying to play it. After it got knocked down, and he had had to fight through Placanitz, first of all, and now that puck's right in his neighborhood. That's a green light hit. You take that, and Moen did. It was a great body contact. Murray had a big hit uh, on uh, on, uh, Bergeron when the Bruins were on the power play just Mm -hmm. prior to the Subban goal. Uh, There were a number of big hits by Montreal. They were the more, I don't know if they were the more aggressor, but they were certainly not worried about that line that you don't want to cross, and I think that was pretty evident. It's funny you bring that up because, obviously, going into the game, Lou was espousing this, you know, make the first hit. And then get away. Don't get called for the Mazeros roughing that I was felt called. like the extracurricular stuff was what they were yeah. getting themselves in trouble and, with. And, and, and I, I agree with that. And then at watching you and Dale in the post game, you brought up the same point about, well, you could tell early they were going to let some stuff go. At that point, Brick, is that up to the Bruins to acknowledge that and say, boy, they're going to let some things go. We can be that physical presence. We don't have to back off as much. I felt like they went into the game mentally thinking, we got to be careful. 
and never got off of that. You know, for 60 minutes, never recognized what I think the Montreal Canadiens did, that we get to officially going to let us play here tonight, we can take advantage of that. Well, it appeared that uh, even though they had that epic third period in Game 2 to come back and tie the series, uh, you know, with that great, uh, you know, full-goal performance, it almost seemed that the message or the or the emphasis was we got ourselves in trouble in the second period, coach included, uh, you know, with with the minor penalties, and we can't do that going to Montreal because it's only going to get amplified uh, if we play that style of hockey. And it was almost to the point where they were too benign. You know, I think he used the word polite. Did I hear that on the yeah. way? Yeah, I mean, that's a reporter in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so that's that's, that's kind of the feeling I had watching the game too. And and I'm not looking for a gong show. I'm not looking right. for mid seventies kind of reaction. Uh, but I'm looking for a little bit more. They need to push that a little bit more in terms of uh, initiating. Uh, but staying within the rules and, and being a little bit more physical. That being said, I give Montreal credit because when they play their best, they're an elusive bunch. They're very good skaters. They know how to spin off hits. Even when they go in and dump the puck in and they gain the red line, you got them angled off, you got them into the boards, and now that's where you put them down. They're able to spin off hits. And, you know, some people say, well, that lacks courage. Well, this is the way they play. This is their style. They avoid big hits because they're elusive, and that can frustrate you as well. But, when I started my opening comments and I was saying, you know, what has to change? You have to understand that there's ebb and flow. There's, there's going to be periods and stretches and sequences where the Bruins are going to show that they are a better hockey team than Montreal. Montreal is going to get the better of the play, you know, in different stretches of the game. It doesn't matter who's been the better team in the majority of these three games. The fact that you're down 2-1 in the series tells you what? Montreal, they're more opportunistic. No That's question. number one. Number one, they are more opportunistic. Number two that their best players, or at least a couple of them, and I think we know who they are, Zuban and Price, mm-hmm. have been better than the Bruins' best players mm-hmm. so far in three games no in this doubt. series. No doubt. They're getting the better of the special teams. The Bruins have made some adjustments on their penalty killing. That seems to be getting some good results, but the special teams have gone in favor of Montreal. And maybe the biggest difference is the role-playing by the guys that aren't the star players for Montreal are actually better than Boston, which is hard for, even, for me even to utter those words because that's really that depth and balance that we talk about all the time with the Boston Bruins that allows them to be the better team. And I'm talking about shot blocking, whether it's Weaver or George's, take your pick. A guy like Dale Weiss, you know, he scored an overtime winning goal in the Tampa series, did he not? He draws the penalty on Bartkowski, which leads to the game-winning goal. He scores a breakaway goal in Game 3. You know, they're getting results in production and big plays from role players, and the Bruins need more of that, too, because they're not winning that battle like they normally do. Now, a lot of the Bruins fans, I think, are looking looking at referees, and I don't think the referees have, have been the issue, especially in Game 3, but we talked about the two hits that people have different opinions on. We'll get your opinion on one more controversial before we get into more of the Maybe the young defenseman. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, I don't think he knocked the, the net off. The, okay, Subban at the <laughs> Is end. Is that where you're going? Well, Subban, <laughs> yeah. people saying that should be a penalty shot. First right. off, if he did intentionally, can you call that with eight seconds? I, I made sure, Lou, that I watched that play maybe you know a dozen times and, and tried to put myself in the position of Subban. And it seemed to me that uh, you know he knew, had a real good idea where he was relative to the net, but I, I honestly believe that he knew he was going to make contact, but I don't think that was his intention to knock it off because I thought he was going to get to that puck clearly first. He knows that there's less than 15 seconds to go or whatever was right. on the clock. Yeah. And he knows he has a chance to hammer that puck and he can fire it, put it up around that glass. It's going to be a tough puck to keep in the offensive zone. So it's hard for me to say, and, and you never know what a player's intention is unless it's blatant, uh, but that wasn't blatant to me. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, you know, as much as I'd like to see the Bruins kind of, Change the impact that he's had this yeah. series so far, but I don't think he did it on purpose. I, I mean, if if let's just say he intended to, 
with I think they went back and they put ten seconds on the clock. Can you really call a penalty shot with ten seconds? Would you sat there and said, "Oh, well, it's the right call," or would you have wanted to let that go? Uh, and, and what role am I? Am I the official? Or You're an official. I, which should should they call something a penalty shot like that? If you even feel that he didn't, I mean, maybe it was egregious. I, I just think it's so hard to legislate intention, especially in a situation like that. When I think he clearly was going to get to the puck first, why would he want to knock the net off? They they didn't appear to be in scramble mode at that point. It wasn't like the Bruins were going to get that puck and make a play to the front of the net. Certainly not in the in the okay. reviews that I looked at. And uh, maybe I could be wrong, but that, that was my that was my take on that play. Well, Andy Brickley is here. We see you guys lined up. I promise we'll get to your phone calls. You know, Lou mentioned the young defenseman. You know, two different plays you talk about. Uh, obviously, on that first goal, I-, I thought it was a great setup by Subban even start Beautiful. the thing, and then a slap pass in front to finish it. On the second goal, I- I'm more curious about, is that just clearly Dougie Hamilton Brick has to have a better recognition of time left on the power play, where is Subban, and i got to make sure that as no matter what, that can't happen. Allowing a breakaway to that player out of the penalty box can't happen in that spot. All right, well, a number of comments on, on, on everything you're talking about, Mutt. First of all, uh, it was a good play by Subban. You know, I, I've, seen, I've seen Dougie Hamilton make that play. I've seen Johnny Boychuk make that play. I've seen Kevin Miller make that play. You know, I mean, it's a pretty standard play if you have support rotating back behind you. It's a possession play mm-hmm. because there's only one player on the opposing team in the neighborhood. In this case, it was Lucic. And now you're going to, by making that little bunt pass back, it's a possession play. And now Krejci's got to go attack Vanek. Mm-hmm. So a good play by Subban. A phenomenal play by oh. Vanek. You know, sells the shot. Not only does Krejci, you know, square up to try to block it, Rask is expecting the shot. The two defensemen in front of the net, and we'll get to them in a second, they're expecting the shot to come in that direction. Krug initially, when he came towards the front of the net and got beyond the goal line, he was thinking that puck's going to get chipped down the wall. That's why it's a good play by Subban. So he's thinking, i got to move in that direction. And now, as your partner, that's why Miller's coming over. He's kind of reading off Krug. Totally forgets about Placanitz. I don't know if he thought Aginla was going to take him back to the net, but Aginla's thinking, i got to slide out to that left point now because Vanna can slide that puck across. I think it was George's that was at the left point. And, and so now you get a couple of defensemen kind of standing around thinking they want to slide in the shooting lane. That's a shot you let your goaltender have because there's no Canadian between Vanek and Rask. That's a shot you give up. you gotta, you got to know where everybody is as a defenseman and find the open man and make sure you're boxing out or picking up. And that's, that's where the mistake was. But take the tape back further. How about the handoff between Rask and Miller initially? Right. You talk about lack of awareness on defensive coverage that led to the first goal. What had actually started before that, to not recognize where the pressure was coming and to have a turnover. And even though it becomes a board battle after that, and the Bruins are in good shape, they get the five guys back, the box in one, and then the puck goes wired around to the far side where Subban is, and, and now the mistakes happen. But it, it has to start between Rask and Miller. So the, the lack of awareness wasn't just in defensive coverage. But it was in puck management and turnovers. I mean, you can't make those mistakes against, you know, teams that know how to score goals at critical times, and that's that's why they've been yeah. opportunistic. Tuca admitted on the power play, you know, he didn't slap his stick. You know, the end of a power play, I think it's just a hockey thing that everybody does. But Dougie Hamilton, like we, Mutt was just saying, the recognition, he was on there, I think it was like a 50-second shift, 56-second shift. you got to know, right, that the penalty is coming up. And that Subban is jumping off. He just, he commits. Yeah, obviously the best players and the experienced guys and guys that are going to play a lot of power play, you have to have that internal clock and, and always be aware. Before every face-off, you're taking a peek and seeing how much time, and, and then you kind of have to you know, process process that while you play. And that comes with experience, and it comes with hockey savvy. And, and you're looking at some growing pains from some young defensemen. It's that simple, you know. 
he sees Larzello with the puck, and, and he wants to say, hey, I can force this guy before he can get to the red line because that's Bergeron on the opposite side, as good a defensive player he is. You know, it's not a defenseman. So if I can challenge him before the red line and force him to just kind of chip it down the wall, now we got possession. I believe that that's what he had to be thinking. But because he doesn't have that internal clock and doesn't realize Subban's coming out of the box at that point, now that wide side of the ice is wide open. So, yeah, that's a bad mistake. It's, it's Again, it's lack of awareness. That's what cost them on the first goal, cost them on the second goal. And, 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 and when you make mistakes like that, the deeper you get into the playoffs, you're going to get exposed. Uh, your call's to Andy Brickley when he's in studio with us, 617-779-7937, the phone number. 4-2, your final last night, 2-1, heading into game four tomorrow. Jimmy is in Connecticut talking about the Bruins with Mutt and Lou and Brick. Jimmy, go ahead. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good, Jimmy. Um, for uh, Lou and Brick, uh, you guys are both professional athletes. Um, Mutt, back to Lou and Brick. Professional drinker but, uh, over here, yeah. You guys, you guys, you hear it all the time about playing with confidence. Uh, Lou, when, you, when you're on a hitting streak, you go up there, the ball looks like a beach ball. Yep. Brick, the open nets, you know, when you're playing hockey. I don't I don't think that the Bruins are playing. They're just so petrified of going to the penalty box that they're just not. They're not. They're not. They're not playing their game. They're just. They're so scared of what the Montreal power play is going to do to them. You agree? I do. I do, and that's why we uh, said, you know, just a few moments ago that there's room to grow in that area. They 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 have to have less fear of of, of being shorthanded and a great initiation to their game and, and less thinking about it. You know, you saw that third period in game two where they were down, and now you're, you're less concerned about going to the penalty box because it's all about a push. We got to push this. We got to go at him. We got to take the body. We got to establish forecheck. We got to try to make plays off the rush. We got to activate our D. And now you're not worried about scrums or, or am I staying within the rules or. Well, or brick, brick. I'm 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 tired of hearing the whole extracurricular. I'm I'm tired of hearing that word because you know what? I think eight times out of ten in the playoffs, especially, they take both guys. The extracurricular stuff is what has gotten the Bruins to play with the way they are with intimidation and beating teams up. And you know, I, I just don't, I don't see I don't see that. You know, I'd like to see an extra cross check in front of the net. I'd like to see some fire out of them. So would I, and, and, and I expect to see more of it in Game 4. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll try to emphasize that I say that almost with a qualifier that, you know, it's not going to be this Donnybrook that, uh, you know, that, that's going to change this series, but they need to do more of it. No question about it. They were too benign in Game 3, especially early. You know, I want to ask you about that, the, the third goal, you know, the, Weiss, the, the breakaway, because I, I was thinking about it. Because I know a lot of people getting on Mazeros, and I was thinking – you watch an NBA game and a guy shoots a three on top of the free, you know, of the key, and a guy comes flying by him to try to block it and just keeps running, and he misses the three and they throw the outlet pass. And that's what I feel like people blaming Mazeros. The guy took the shot. Weiss came flying at him, and he just threw it to the net, and Weiss just kept going. And everyone's saying Mazeros has got to get back. I after taking that shot, he went flying by him. Now I don't know if Boychuk's supposed to slide over or if it was just a unfortunate that he blocked it right to Briere. Boom. You know, out to Weiss, but what about responsibility there? Did you look at Mazeros and say, after you shoot, you got to get back? It's hard when you're when you're trailing by a pair of goals. If you're the weak side defenseman, if you're Johnny Boychuk over there, your expectation is that Mazeros is going to make the right play. Uh, he has Weiss bearing down on him, so he doesn't have a lane to shoot it through him. Mm-hmm. So he's got to get it by him. But you hope that he has recognition that. 
We've seen it now through two and a half games, how they stack it up between that point man and the net. Not just the forward going at the defenseman, but the other defenseman on the puck side will also front that shot, and that's exactly where Weaver was. Now, if you shoot that puck with no intention of thinking it's going to get knocked down, and now you have no chance. You have no chance to cover up. Weiss is gone. And, and, and I can't put it on Boychuk to say, hey, i got to be a safety valve here the minute Mazaros gets it. First of all, you think, hey, maybe he might throw it over to me. B, he might shoot it in and might miss the net. I keep it on the right side, keep the pressure on. You know, and I don't expect it to get blocked by Weaver. Well, you know, I mean, that's that decision-making and awareness. Again, it's, it's not as blatant as the two goals and the reason the two goals were scored prior to that against Boston. But, again, it's <laughs> – you got to make some changes on those shots. You can't allow Montreal to continue to block shots. It's part of their strategy. It's part of their counterattack. And that was a classic example. It worked perfectly. doesn't always work that way, but it leads to a puck change of hands every time they block the shot. They're getting a ton, ton of blocked shots. I'm just wondering, you know, Mazeros, I think it was game two, when he deliberately missed that net and brought it back around. Is that from the point that blocking things, you want yeah, to see that more wasn't of deliberate. that? That wasn't deliberate. You know, that puck kind of went on. He missed it by edge. 20 yeah, feet. The puck went on edge. <laughs> no, the puck went on. No, the puck went on. You you know, he, he, could that, sco- he could have scored from where he was. He has yeah. that good a shot. The puck kind of flipped on him, and it went wide short side, and it, and it worked to the Bruins' benefit. Uh, but what you saw was that play off the faceoff, the Bergeron goal. Bergeron Krug goal. Krug shooting it off net because that was the place. You can still shoot the puck off net as long as it's within reach of one of your plays to get a redirect, or it's going to come off the backboards in a direction where you have a chance to get it back. There's nothing wrong with that. Even with the goaltender pulled, you know, Miller at the right point, he sees David Krejci kind of flank out to the offside, and he hammers a puck in his direction, and even though they don't get a one-timer there, they have possession, he goes behind the net, finds Lucic, you know, finds Mazaros at the point, and Ginla's in front. They need to do more of that with the puck. If they're going to feed the points, it has to be more purposeful when they move the puck back into the, you know, deeper into the zone. Uh, let's talk to Nick, who's in Weymouth on the uh, Bruins offense in this series so far. Hi, Nick. Hello. Nick. Hey, how you doing? Um, said the same thing going into this game. I talked to you guys last week. Might want to try shooting the puck. I think it was like seven minutes into that third period, right? Uh, Bruins had like seven, five shots. Uh, uh, Montreal, too. I mean, give me a break. You also might want to try hitting. I don't know when the Bruins became a finesse team, but that's how they played in that game as far as I'm concerned. How about hitting Subban, right? He's not a known fighter, okay? You might want to hit him like once or twice, kind of like really hard. I mean, give me a break. The biggest thing in this, against the Canadians, when they try to go finesse, when they try to think about what they're going to do, that, where they've just you know, done a takeover, done a takeaway, whatever, that's given Montreal enough time to react, and that's how they're getting in there to block the shots. Thank you. Go get him, Brick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you wanted. You never questioned. You just told us. Well, I mean, you he, think he this is breaking the it down for I mean, us? One of, one of the things we try to show in in, in pre and post last night, uh, you know, around the around the telecast on the network was, uh, you know, maybe some tweaks that you can make in the offensive zone in order in order to to loosen up all that traffic that gets between the the puck at the point and the Montreal net. And, and, and I'm a firm believer of adding a wrinkle, adding a little something to what you're doing in the offensive zone where one of your forwards comes out really high, not in a straight line with two defensemen at the blue line, but kind of like a flat triangle where you're, where you're beyond the tops of the circles mm-hmm. but not all, all the way out to the blue line. And that forces man-on-man coverage by Montreal. And now you only have maybe three or four bodies 
closer to the net, not five or six. And I think you can actually isolate that one-on-one coverage where you can create a little give-and-go two-on-one, especially if it's Krug, especially if it's Hamilton. You hit that guy almost the way they use Bergeron on the power play in that high slot for possession in in order to create two-on-ones. Do that in your little five-on-five. See how they react to that. Maybe that loosens up that that density that you see in the middle of the ice in in the defensive zone for Montreal. You know, when I think, like, shoot the puck, I think of a couple times this, this series, but that's really about it. Like, the Krug, where maybe game one, maybe held it a little bit too long. Remember, we were talking about, you know, shoot that puck. Erickson, I think, did it in game two. But other than that, I mean, they're shooting no, they had, the puck. They had 50 shots. Right. They had 98 shots attempted in game one, right? I mean, it's not just as simple as shooting the puck as, as much as you feel that way at times. Uh, it's it's shooting the puck with a purpose and 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 scoring and finishing. It's It's more finishing than finishing. just shooting the puck. Uh, you know, it, there are times when you need to shoot a puck in order to get something out of it. You expect to save, but you're looking for a rebound. You, you, you know, or you we, want to shoot the puck off net because you're looking for a redirect or a possession play off the backboard. All right, go to, we got to go to the break. Is that another question for him? Well, <laughs> I, got, I have a lot of questions for Brick, and so do our callers, 617-779-7937, the phone number. The guys who uh, the, we have questions about shooting the puck right now is that Bruins' first line. You know, I answered the question yeah. about – uh, answer mm-hmm. the, open the show with where are the Bruins? You know, where are the Boston Bruins we saw all year? I think the same question can be asked about Krejci, Lucic, and Jerome McGinley, their production here in this series. We'll talk to Brick about that. I'll take all your phone calls until noon here on Sports Radio WEI. Breaking down Game 3, Bruins and Canadians with Andy Brickley of Nesson. He's in studio until noon taking your calls. He's brought to you by Norfolk Power Equipment, HSA Insurance, and Joe and Lee's Golf Performance Center, 617 779 7937. We both had questions for Brick going to the break. You want to go first? I stepped on it because we had to take commercial break. Yeah, no, no. It's, it sounds good. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm ready to go. We, I think every single playoff run, at least a deep Stanley Cup playoff run, you know, phones light up, people have their opinions. And we know Claude is a very patient individual. We know he sticks with it. You know, he know he sticks with his guys because in some sports, you usually get rewarded if you stick with it. They'll get through it. My question, and personally, I, I don't think it'll happen pregame. Maybe during the game if things slow down. First line has been outstanding for you all year. Second line, third line, no doubt about it. But do you tweak? Do you do you tweak lines? You think Claude will tweak a line? Maybe if game four, you know, two periods in, things aren't going well. And what would it be? Yeah, that would probably be the only time. You know, if it's not going well in your in your period of half or whatever, you know, the end of game four. I don't expect it prior to, except maybe a change on the back end. Maybe Bartkowski gets back in there for Mazaros. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I would expect that. Um, but that being said, I don't think they'll do anything with their forward lines. You know, this team, and, and we give them credit, I certainly do, about their the, how mature they are this time around and, and how, how, how whenever they faced difficult times, not that there were a ton during the regular season, they were able to battle through it. And, but just the maturity, the way they carry themselves, the believability they have. Uh, and, and, and I saw it after losing game one at home against the Detroit Red Wings in that one nothing game and how they dominated and played more of their brand of hockey in game two. Uh, I saw some of that in game two of this series. And now as I look forward to game four, it's not about tweaking any forward lines. It's about the will to win. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the game that it, I have to see it. And if Claude's not getting it and he's not getting the results he's looking for, and it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be 4-1 Boston. It could be 1-1. How about tied or better after two periods for a change? That'd be nice. <laughs> you know, everyone talks about it, and I'm guilty of it too, but it's actually guilty is not the right word. It's accurate. The Bruins wear their opponent down. And, and maybe that had something to do in the course of the game and the end result in game two. But the Bruins are wearing themselves down if they have to fight from behind. 
the the emotional energy that you use up and it has a lasting effect the deeper you get into a series. So now the advantage you have of wearing a team down with your depth and balance disappears because you're expending more energy than you need to to get back into these games when you're down by two or three goals every night. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would change lines from Clota. I, I would keep going what I went to after the game last night, which is we need that first line. And this, this first line right now, Rick, they're struggling overall. I mean, David Krejci led your team in points the last two Stanley Cup runs. One resulted in a win. The other one ended in game six. You know, 23 points and 26 points respectively. Through eight games in the postseason so far, David Krejci has no goals, three assists, and he's a minus three. And I don't want to put it all on him. No, I don't. I think Milan Lucic <laughs> and Jerome McGinley. Like sure. The whole line deserves blame, but I just I view him as like the catalyst on that line. And when that line's not going well, I feel like it's 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 – Krejci can start to get things going. I feel like there's going to be some pressure on Krejci in that entire first line to play better than what we've seen here in these first three games. No doubt about it. And and, and before you even uh, continue the, the critique of that line, I'm going to give a little tip of the cap, mostly to Placanitz. He's done a pretty good job against David Krejci. He's kind of get under his skin and frustrate him a little bit. Placanitz is a good skater. Uh, he gets around the ice real good. He's got a little nasty in him. He's a good stick man. They can get really under your skin. He makes good plays by using his stick. He'll chop your stick to knock the puck off the blade of your stick, even if it's just a foot and a foot and a half away, and now it changes exactly what you were trying to do just prior to having that puck knocked away from you. He does a lot of that little stuff. He chirps a lot for a guy uh, you know, hmm. it, it, that, uh, that really probably doesn't have a reputation of being a huge trash talker. But he gets your attention right across the, right down the line. You know, everybody on the bench knows Polkanis is out there and, and the style of game that he plays. And then when he buries one last night, it just frustrates you even more. So uh, he's done a nice job. So I want to give him a little bit of credit. But yeah, you're right. It's it's about that line showing up and playing their style of hockey. And and you don't need four goals from them in game four. But you need a great effort. You need a dominant performance. You need a ton of ozone time. And you do need some production from that group. They, they had some opportunities earlier in the series, didn't bury really uh, what you're used to seeing. Uh, you can point out to all the number of posts the Bruins have hit in this series, but that means nothing. Uh, that's just the way the game goes. You have to be more opportunistic, but that line has to play more to their identity. If they don't, it's going to be a tough task to get this series where you need to get it. Yeah, I know Fluto's piece today in the Globe talking about those two in particular. You know, uh, you get the perfect scenario, right? Krejci and Emilio, you get two tough guys. You don't really have... Those physical defensemen, they should be able to have a little bit more room. Zero shots the first 20 minutes from Ginla and Luch. And then you got Krejci, four for 14, I think, on faceoffs. Just uncharacteristic, right? I mean, that second line, I thought, had some really good shifts early on in that game. You know, Bergeron has been outstanding, of course. But that first line, you, you got to start counting. Yeah, on. no problems with Bergeron and, and, and actually Riley Smith throughout the playoffs this year. Marshan's been a little bit of hit or miss, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little bit too much miss. He was obviously great in the third period in game two, but you're looking for more of that 60 minute effort, that type of game from him. He was one of the guys that was too polite uh, most of game three. He could do more. That line could be a little bit more dynamic. Uh, I'd like to see Kyle Soderberg. I know he's got a lot of credit for for being a good player here in this postseason, but in this series, I find him actually on the ice way too frequently. You know, losing his balance or losing a one-on-one -on -one battle for a big, strong guy. Uh, he's lost some quickness battles. He's made some good plays, and the third line has had their moments at times, but uh, he could be more of a factor, too, as well. Did and, he misstep on that shot in front? Oh, it hit him in the skate. Yeah, it, it was like he was right set skate. up to just put that yeah, thing but I mean, home. Th and that's one of the examples I'm talking about. Yeah. When he got the penalty? When he, yeah. When, yeah. Yeah, you know, keep your balance there. It's, you know, 
I'm nitpicking because sure. you know I'm, I'm just as frustrated as everybody else because uh, I thought the Bruins would be up 2-1 by this point in this series and, and disappointed the way things went last night. But those are some of the areas that I'm talking about that they could be better in. And 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 uh, and to what I said in the, my opening comments, where the Bruins need to be better and where the trends have gone Montreal's way, the role players, uh, the best players, they everybody has to get better in what it is they mean to their respective team, meaning the Boston Bruins. Now, I know we got, we got full lines. We're going to get to the calls, but you mentioned it earlier. You're talking about Mazeros and Barkowski. Now, Barkowski obviously had an awful game, game one. But I, I thought he was going to roll him back out there for game two. He doesn't. He goes with Mazeros. You win the game, so I figure you don't make any changes. Was there something that you saw? Was it just the loss? Or was there something that you've been seeing the last couple of games? Because we were just talking about that third goal, and maybe it really a lot to ask of him to get back. Something in his game, the reason why you say that Barkowski should be back in there? Well, when I watch Mazzaro's play, and, 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 and you know, it's difficult to do because you know, I'm in studio and you're just watching the game on TV. It's, you're not sitting seeing the whole ice and seeing how he reacts, where he reads the play, where he's going when he doesn't have the puck. Does he understand the system? Does he know what's going to happen before it happens and in order to be in the right spots? But the one thing that jumps out at you, if, if he doesn't have that first pass available, he's just unloading it. You know, it's going off the glass or it's going off the boards, and that's just giving possession to the other team, and that's mm-hmm. not the style of hockey that you really want to play. You know, you have the confidence to hang on to the puck, skate to open space, create a little two-on-one, create a second passing and lane. And that's that not might... him. That's Barkowski. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and as far as Barkowski in game one, you know, I, I believe the Bruins felt that he was he had a nervous start. He got better in the middle of the game like the Bruins did as a team, and then he made some critical mistakes at the end, which took him out of the lineup. But – I got to believe he can give you more than Mazzaro's when you start thinking about what tweaks you want to make with your lineup, thinking about Thursday night. Uh, John is in Warwick talking about this series with Mutt and Lou and Andy Brickley today. Go ahead, John. Hi, guys. How you doing? Listen, great show. Um, I just have a couple of observations. <clears throat> One is, uh, does it, is it me or do they, do they look? I know it's a tough building to play in. Uh, uh, there's a lot of emotion, especially for the Canadians. They're all ramped up, but the Bruins just seem to start out so slow. The, the passes on Chris by the Bruins. Every pass by the Canadians seems to hit a stick, another Canadian stick. The Bruins, you know, Charo will skate around, and, and you know, there, there'll be somebody attacking him, you know, and he's behind the net, and, you know, he'll, he'll kick it out to somebody, and then they kick it back to him, and it's just, you know, back and forth, back and forth. It just looks like they're a little slow and a little sluggish, and one more thing, I think somebody should step up and take out Subban and and let him, you know, play Bruins style of hockey. And that's not what I feel they're doing right now. I just wanted your comments on that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it goes back to execution. I mean, we, we talked about the great stats, you know, the first couple games. I mean, it's one thing. The Bruins dominated game one. Well, they got to execute. They got to finish when they have opportunities. And so far, I think in three games, guys, we've seen a big-time lack of execution both defensively in some mental mistakes, and offensively, chances right in front of the goal mouth and just not putting those things on. Mental mistakes, Matt. That's the phrase. Mental mistakes. What's the biggest mental mistake you can make is to be not mentally ready to play. Right. <laughs> and that's what they were last night. You know, Montreal is a tough building to play in, but this core group has had success there. They know what it takes to play in Montreal and win hockey games in the postseason. Uh, they've lived it, and I know the names change a little bit, and the teams are all unique, and they're different, but this core group's been together. We give them a lot of credit for being a mature group. I need to see it in Game 4. The Bruins fan base, the organization, the players themselves, they need to see it in Game 4, and it has to be in the opening 20 minutes. That is the area 
that has been the biggest concern that has to be better. They've had decent first periods in the playoffs. They've had decent first periods in this series. But what they got last night in the opening 20 cannot be in play on Thursday. You know, when you talk different fan bases, you get different opinions. You know, game two, people in Montreal will say they played great for 15 minutes, and then they just didn't play like the Canadians the last 10. In Boston, we say they didn't play like the Bruins (laughs) for 50, and they finally woke up. So I look at game three. And somebody was challenging us and saying, I don't understand how you could say the Bruins are the better team. I do. I feel like they are because they're doing things uncharacteristically that we haven't seen. But where do you give the Canadians credit other than being opportunistic? Are they creating the Bruins to look like this? Well, one thing that they did go uh, that I, that you notice in game three was they took a little bit more conservative approach in center ice. You know, they didn't pinch their defensemen in the offensive zone. They always had a third guy high that just kind of drifted back into center ice. You know, we had a highlight package uh, after game two where they had a number of odd man rushes. They made good plays off the rush. Uh, even the Hamilton goal, even though it's not off the rush, it's him coming late off after a good rush where you gain the offensive zone. So Montreal makes an adjustment where, you know what, we're going to be a little bit more conservative. Uh, I think they believe that Boston's a better team. To You know, they would never admit that. Uh, but they say this is a Bruins team that we can't match them in certain areas. Our best opportunity to beat them is a counterpunch. Mm-hmm. So we need to be better in center ice. Let's, let's not give them easy entries. Let's not allow them to, to establish their forecheck. If we slow them down a little bit in center ice, not, not meaning slow because Boston's just you know flying out there, but not allowing the Bruins to lay pucks in areas where they can use their foot speed to get that pressure and establish that ozone time by tying it up, forcing the Bruins to make some other decisions where they look sluggish. And now that one quick pass out of their own zone. You saw a number of stretch passes, uh, spend less time in your own end. And I think that adjustment that they made by taking a less conserv- or more, uh, more conservative approach in center ice and on their attack, the minute the puck turns over in the offensive zone, they're going deep. Three guys deep. They'll dart around. They'll beanbag the puck to the net. They'll shoot from anywhere. They'll make plays, and then they try to get that third guy out right away again and be conservative. Counterattack, counterpunch. I think that was one of the tweaks that worked for them. Uh, and I want to go back to the caller's other point about, you know, you got to take Subban out. <laughs> Watch him when the puck gets dumped into his corner. If he knows he can't get there first with enough separation where he can scoop the puck and maybe swing the net or do a quick turn up, he's not going to go get it right away. He's going to glide in there. He's going to go in there with you shoulder to shoulder. He's not going to get hit square. He's going to spin off the hit. He's going to use that explosive first, second stride. If he does get to the puck first, uh, he's going to hold you off. He's got good balance, good strength. You know, he knows that he's a target, and he's very good at avoiding it and still, you know, a lot of times make the right play, but he will turn the puck over. When you have the puck as much as he does – you know, and you yeah. have a high-risk mentality, you're going to turn the puck over. So it's not so much running this guy out of town or targeting him. It's forcing him into mistakes because he'll make them. Quick break. We'll come back. Brick is in studio taking your calls at 617-779-7937. The phone number recapping Bruins and Canadians Game 3, Sports Radio, WEEI. Hanging out with Andy Brickley of Nesson. Don't forget, Nesson has a one-hour pregame and postgame every single game during this playoff run. You know, sometimes it's on Nesson Plus because of the Red Sox, but uh, pre and post for an hour, you're getting a breakdown from uh, Brick, Jack, Dale, Jamie, part of the mix. They are doing it every single game. Uh, you get it on Nesson or Nesson Plus. Check your local listings uh, as we get set for game four tomorrow. I've not had very many Tuka Rask calls today, but Bill in a truck wants to talk about Tuka. Bill, how are you? Hey, guys. Brick, uh, a pleasure to speak with you. Uh I've got a couple quick questions, and I'll get off. I'll let you comment on them. Uh, I wish you and Jack were doing the shows, too. But uh, 
Chukarask, I was at the early in the game. I just had a quick question. He seemed to be overhandling and mishandling the puck behind the net, making some passes. And I believe, and you break it down a lot better. Maybe you can remember this. One of the, it's either the first or the second goal. He tried to pass something and it broke it down, and he ended up scoring a goal on within like 20 seconds of that play. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. He, he tried to pass it around the back up to a, a guy in a corner, and it, it just got totally handled and led to one of those goals. And the other question I have for you, Brick, and I'll get off, is uh, it doesn't seem like they're um, the face-off are as dominating as they used to be during the regular season. Thank you, gentlemen. One area of Tuca's game that has really improved is, is his ability to get out of the net, handle the puck, uh, make a smart play with the puck, whether he uses the net as his ally, goes indirect behind the net, or he just stops it for a defenseman, quick up on the short side so the defenseman doesn't have anybody breathing down his neck. Uh, but that's right. The first goal by Plakanitz was a, was a miscommunication handoff between he and Miller. And that is a, a glaring example of the lack of awareness, both in Miller and maybe not so much in Tuca, but there needs to be better communication and, and, and know that there's a guy right on Miller's back and you don't have the time to do what you want to do. So uh, that was the first example of too many examples of mental mistakes by Boston. I'm not going to put that one on Tuca, but, uh, you know, Tuca needs to be better. We talked about the Bruins' best players need to be better. Uh, he needs to be better. I'm hoping we don't get in. This is a conversation I had with Jack last night post game. I'm hoping that he doesn't have to steal game four. I want game four to be a dominant performance mm-hmm. by the entire Boston Bruins team. Now, if you need to steal one, because a lot of people felt that Carey Price stole one in game one, uh, that Tuca needs to match that at some point. Well, maybe it's game six in Montreal. I'll take that. But I want to see game four be sure. what the Bruins are all about. Um, what was it, what was it face-offs. called? Face-offs. Oh, yeah, face-offs. Uh, yeah, four Mont- 14 for Krejci last night. Yeah, Montreal's, you know, you look at their sentiment and you see Placanitz, you see DeRNA, you know, you don't think that it's part of their repertoire, you know, because they're not big guys, but they're crafty. They got quick stick. And Lars Eller is the same way, and, and I don't care what the numbers are. You know, you watch that final two minutes, you know, when the Bruins cut it from 3-1 to 3-2. There were a number of face-offs. Are the Bruins winning the majority of those draws? And even the last face-off, they're actually winning that draw, but it goes to show that, that it's not the sentiment per se that's going to be that 70% win guy. He's got to get help, and Eller is able to sidestep Krejci have a strong stick against Lucic to knock that puck on the weak side of on the backhand side of Krug. So, I mean, that's technically a face-off win for who? Is that a Boston win or is that a Montreal yeah. win? Because it's an empty net goal. So, uh, yeah, they've done a pretty good job. I, I got to give Montreal yeah. credit. You know, that coach, uh, you watch his interviews and you say, "Come on, this is it. What are we? What are we watching here?" You know, some of the things that you're hearing and some of the comments, but. You know, they're a pretty cohesive group, and they're getting contributions from a lot of guys that aren't big in stature, but they believe they can beat Boston. Uh, Mike in New Hampshire talking lineup changes for Game 4. Mike, go ahead. Hey, guys. Uh, I, just, uh, I think I've seen enough of Jordan Caron in the past three years to know that he's, you know, Danny Pye light. Um, to me, if you're going to play a speedy team, why don't you put Ryan Spooner in there and match him speed for speed? You could put Spooner on the third line with Soderberg and Erickson. And then put Pie back with the Merlot line. I just, I don't, I don't see Caron doing much of anything helpful. And usually when I see him, it's either a turnover or he'll try to chip a lot up along the boards and it's intercepted. And it's just, I don't know, he's a frustrating kid because sometimes you see flashes of what he can do, like against Detroit when he scored that goal. But uh, I just think against a smaller, faster team, you need to match some speed with speed. 
You know, I'm not in panic mode. I, I truly believe this is a seven-game series. Uh, as frustrated as you get after watching game three and not getting the results you're looking for and certainly not the level of play that you're looking for on a consistent basis. But I'm not in panic mode, but uh, I think you make a valid point. Uh, you know, I've been a Spooner guy all along, and I understand that he has a lot of things to learn about competing in the NHL and the board battles and, and, and being on the right side of the puck and not taking shortcuts because you think you have an offensive chance. But I do love his speed, and maybe, just maybe, this is a real good matchup for him. Uh, and this isn't a beat-up Jordan Caron session, but, you know, Caron's in, Florek's out. Do you put Florek in? Do you keep Caron in? Same guy. You know, do you keep Pae where he is? So I am definitely open to that concept. I don't know if I'm open to it for game four, but certainly it's within the realm of possibility. And it would be the third line, right? Like oh, you yeah. Were talking about. yeah. yeah. It would be, though, it would be, you mentioned the speed. It would be a little bit of burst, and after last night, I come away with it like you, you, you started by saying, where was the emotion, where was the energy? I feel like he might make a mistake or two, but he's going to make a couple offensive plays as Spooner that yeah, are going to are going to give a little bit of jump to his team, and they could use that even for a game. And probably four. not, and probably not a fair analogy, but it, it, it's reminiscent of you know when Sagan got his first kick at the can in the postseason Tampa, when he came. A big series. Tampa, yeah, he had a major immediate impact. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. Obviously, things tailed off. Once play, once teams started to say, "Okay, this kid can do this," so we got to, you know, we got to take out, you know, what he does best. But they might get that immediate impact. They might, they may not, it may not even even come to play. But uh, you know, it's I think it's worthy of discussion. You know, it's funny you you mentioned that we're talking about you know Spooner, Florick, Garon, um, <laughs> Barkowski, or, or Mazeros. And before the series started, we said, "Okay, well, maybe this is a measuring stick." If you go back to the trade deadline, we'll see if Vanek shows up. We'll see how. The Bruins actually play, and I feel you, one of the things you want at the trade deadline was another veteran forward to kind of compete. Now, Chris Kelly injury came. Okay, he thought maybe he's going to come back. He doesn't. So now we're trying to figure out that extra forward. We we're talking. We, now we talked a lot about a defenseman. We wanted to see him go out and get a defenseman. I might have yelled about that a extra defenseman. guy, right? So now we're trying to figure out the lesser of two evils: Matt Barkowski and Andre Mazeros. The two areas that we wanted the trade deadline. It seems like. They're, they're yeah. biting them in the butt a little bit right now. Well, that was the ideal wish list, that they go get a, a seventh D that could fit into the system, could maybe have the versatility to play either side. You know yeah. how the Bruins like that left-right, left-right situation. But a guy that had some playoff experience that would put a little pressure and competition on the young defense to continue to elevate their game uh, and then just have that security blanket going into the postseason that you have seven guys back there. I mean, ideally you have eight, maybe even nine if that was the case. You were unsure of when McQuaid was coming back. Maybe he was part of the mix. Uh, only the Bruins knew that. And maybe they knew more than we did, which is why they went and got a second defenseman in Potter to go along with Mazaros. But, yeah, that was the ideal wish list because you start looking at the depth chart. Depth and balance was a phrase you use all the time from the Bruins. They roll four lines. Okay, well, if you expect injuries – or poor play from someone that, uh, you know, is new to this playoff thing, well, who's going to step in? And mm-hmm. where is that going to pressure be from underneath? And where is that security? And if you could have gotten a veteran forward, uh, another versatile veteran forward that you could plug in in different situations or plug him into a situation where he belongs and rotate a guy that can play in a top mm-hmm. six or a bottom six, now you have that ideal wish list that you talk yeah. about at the deadline. But, again, not privy to the dollars and cents, not privy to the deals that were on the table. Uh, that was a wish list that didn't happen, and I think you're seeing some of the challenges now. Uh, tremendous breakdown, Brick. Uh, we could have gotten to a million more phone calls. We will as Brick uh, leaves us. We tell you that Brick will have pre and post tomorrow uh, from the studios uh, right down the right down the street in Watertown. And then th- uh, Friday, a Saturday night, 
seven o'clock game back in the building on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, thanks for the plugs for uh, for Nesson and Nesson Plus. And uh, the home games you'll have, you know, either Billy Jaffe or, or Barry Peterson as the studio analyst. Jack and I will be back together. The home games are a little bit more enjoyable from where I'm sitting <laughs> because you're in the building and you're you're, you're part of the atmosphere. But I certainly understand uh, the team aspect of what we're doing at Nesson. But, yeah, for the away games, and that'll be tomorrow night, back in studio with Dale. Great well, stuff, Brick. We'll, we'll tell Dale you don't appreciate being in studio with him. <laughs> yeah, we'll, let, we'll, we'll see him at the crossover at 2 o'clock. I'll be, I'll be sure to pass that message along at 2. Brick, thanks. Have thanks, a good Brick. afternoon. You got it, guys. Uh, it's Andy Brickley joining us here in studio. I, I had mentioned this, Lou. I said we hadn't gotten many Tuka Rask calls. And immediately after I said that, the text started coming in. We just had two and uh, still two calls on the board. Uh, about the goalie situation. I'm surprised we haven't got more of these because when the Bruins lose, they come out of the woodwork on Tuka Rask. I want to talk about Tuka and continue with your phones at 617-779-7937 is your phone number. Talking Bruins Game 3 with you, Mutt and Lou, 93.7. You know, Tuka 